This book is a product of my own struggle to understand how the idealistic institutions our country built to safeguard both public health and democracy suddenly turned against our citizens and our values with such violence. I am a lifelong Democrat whose family has had 80 years of deep engagement with America's public health bureaucracy and long friendships with key federal regulators, including Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, and Robert Gallo. Members of my family wrote many of the statutes under which these men govern. They nurtured the growth of equitable and effective public health policies and defended that regulatory bulwark against ferocious attacks funded by industry. I built my own alliances with these individuals and their agencies during my years of environmental and public health advocacy. Quiet on the set. Camera speed. But I also watched how the industry, supposedly being regulated, used its indentured servants on Capitol Hill and its financial clout to systematically hollow out those agencies beginning in the 1980s, disabling their regulatory function and transforming them into sock puppets for the very industry Congress charged them with regulating. I explore the carefully planned militarization and monetization of medicine that has left American health ailing and our democracy shattered. I chronicle the troubling role of the big tech robber barons, the military and industrial agencies, their deep historical alliance with Big Pharma and the public health agencies. The disturbing story that unfolds here has never been told and many in power have worked hard to prevent the public from learning it. The principal character is Anthony Fauci. Welcome back to the FLCCC Weekly Update, where we have so much good information to share with you tonight from our first ever medical conference that took place in Orlando, Florida last weekend and more. Note that the film trailer you just saw is for the long-awaited documentary about Anthony Fauci, who has been virtually sainted by most major media, yet many top doctors and scientists around the world have other opinions have serious concerns about what Fauci's partnership with Big Pharma has done to medical care in this country and in many other countries around the world, and what it has meant to science itself. I'm Betsy Ashton, creative director of this alliance and a former reporter who remembers when we would search for any sign that a corporation ran roughshod over government agencies that were set up to regulate it supposed to stand up for the pure public interest, supposed to expose conflicts of interest. We begin tonight's program by introducing you to Jeff Hayes, the filmmaker who asked a lot of questions after he read Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s best-selling book on Fauci. Jeff, welcome to our weekly update. You have an incredible film that's there. You interviewed our doctors, Paul Merrick, Pierre Corey, bring them in. You 
put them on for a long time. Um, how did you, what really inspired you to put this on film? Well, I've known Bobby for years and, and filmed him for previous projects. Um, and so I, I bought the book and, and I read the book and I was one of the ignorant. I didn't really know much about Anthony Fauci other than COVID. And so I was stunned to read his history and read where this guy came from, what he has been doing for 40 years. As soon as I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here this book sold a million copies, 17 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And still to this day, there hasn't been one major media review of the book, complete silence. And so my thinking when I approached Bobby was, if we can get a million people to buy a 600 page book, I surely can get way more than that to watch a documentary that we put out for free. Now we the have, question is, will it, will we let people be able to let people know that it exists? We have eight more days of part one that's going to be free, right? And we've got the link on our website for everybody here. And then you've got a part two. Is, is that correct? Correct. And it's free as well. Um, and, and so it will go live uh, next Tuesday, the 25th, and people will be able to see it uh, for free as well. So nobody has to purchase this. Uh, I hope everybody in the world wants to own it and does, but no one has to purchase it to watch it. Of course, all the media is covering this, right? Oh, the, uh, the, the <laughs> silence it, it has been deafening. And, you know, uh, um, amazingly enough, we found a home in conservative talk radio. And so I'm doing about five to eight um, talk radio. I've, I've got some that start at like 4.30 in the morning, uh, but I will do whatever it takes to get this out, out there. Well, Paul and Pierre, what'd you think? You saw it, right? You've, you've already had a chance? Well... <clears throat> It's like reliving a nightmare. I mean, and I speak about the book. I mean, the book was, um, to say, transformative. And I've already been transformed in these last two years. But that book, I, I don't know when I read it. it was about six months, maybe. Uh, I can't remember. No, Yeah. Well, it actually came out last November. So almost a year ago. I probably re read it in January or February. But um, the, the documentary, you know, some of the interviews and some of the people who were there, you know, who've been following Fauci, following this story, following the biomedical industrial complex. Um, I, I thought those interviews and their comments were just absolutely powerful. And Carrie Mullis, um, just all of these. You, you know, what's interesting, Jeff, is for a lot of people who read that book, even Paul and I, I, I read all the HIV chapters. And I still didn't feel like I fully understood, but I felt the documentary really brought it home. Like I finally understood, especially the part about cofactors. And then like one of the most potent parts is, is the one about how Fauci removed the HIV negative AIDS patients and then called it a different disease, right? Because they had to stick to the, to the narrative, which is that they had discovered the cause of AIDS. And I mean, you could just see the duplicity and and the malevolence of what they're, I mean, that guy has the capacity for lying, backstabbing, backroom dealing, that that guy will do anything. And I thought, I thought the documentary really hit that, you know, with the footage, the, the interviews, his public statements. I mean, you can see that guy look right into the camera, into 20 microphones and tell outrageous, easily disprovable lies. 
But the media support him and the agencies support him. You can't take him down, right? It, it's amazing. This is not the first time this has happened in this country. I did a film series, uh, a documentary series for uh, that we sold to Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, on the war on drugs. And there was a bureaucrat in the 20s named Harry Anslinger who took over the Bureau of Narcotics at a time when, when it had little funding, prohibition was ending, it was, you know, and he started releasing outrageous things, you know, one of which was that these drugs, heroin and cocaine and marijuana were making black men crave white women. And this was actually in the New York Times. He built that Bureau of Narcotics, major budget, ran it for 50 years, longer than J. Edgar Hoover. But it shows what happens when a bureaucrat can build a power base by controlling funding. He exported our war on drugs you know, to all over the world. Fauci did the exact same thing where he took a, you know, a little, you know, not an impressive department, gathered the funding once he got control and wrestled AIDS into his department, built that into a powerhouse where he has all these people dependent on him for funding. And it, it, it was, um, you know, when I read Bobby's book, I, 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 this was all new to me. Mm -hmm. One of the things yes. with you guys that, you know, a lot of times when we're doing a documentary, it's hard to get people to agree to appear. And my booker was calling and saying, this is the first thing I've ever booked that not only is everybody that's in the book willing to appear, they're eager to appear. And I, I can't thank you two enough. So, Jeff, I must congratulate you. I think you brought the book to life. You you give it a face and character, and um, it, it tells a compelling story. You know, the book is very heavy to read. You know, um, it's very dense. It's very, very well referenced. But it's, it, it's, it's a shocking story. It tells a truly shocking story. And the film, I think, brings it to life in a way that's easy to follow. And it tells the story. And, you know, I agree with you. I think everyone on this planet needs to see the movie, to see the truth. You know, you can't hide it. And the things, the things that he did, the crimes he committed, um, are truly astonishing. And I think people need to know about it. And the, the movie brings this to life because you see people, you see pictures, you see interviews. Um, for me, probably one of the most uh, devastating pictures are these children uh, wh whom he experimented on in whom they couldn't get them to take the medication orally, so they put in feeding tubes. I, I mean, it's it's incredible, you know, <laughs> that a human being could voluntarily do this to another human being. Um, Pierre and I have spoken about it. it. It's truly astonishing. And you know what? I think people need to know the truth. He hides behind this mask. And people think of him as some kind of a hero. He's a monster. And I think the movie brings out what a totally evil man he is. And why he's put on a pedestal 
And why he continues to be on a pedestal is truly astonishing. So, you know, I think that's why this, and, you know, I'm just so, so grateful to you that you're going to make this film, you know, available to people on this planet because, you know, people need to know the truth. So important. Like, Jeff, what you said before, you know, it's a heavy lift to ask someone to read a 600-page book. But a, a captivating documentary, a story in the way you told it of that scope and scale, I mean, I, I thought it was riveting. And, and I hope there's a lot of eyeballs on it because this really is the truth. It's uncovering the truth of 40 years. And, you know, the point you just made is so interesting about the Bureau of Narcotics in the 20s and how he, the, the whoever that, I, I can't remember his name, but by creating these crises, he gets more and more funding, right? And that's such an exact parallel. That's what one of the things I took from the book, which is that Fauci, that little NIAID is almost bigger than the NIH. He has so much power because he's been manufacturing pandemics and crises. He goes to Congress. He goes to the president. He gets billions of dollars every time he asks. He used AIDS for that. He tried to rinse and repeat, right, with uh, H, uh, what is it, uh, H1N1. It, th- these guys can't have enough viral pandemics. And I find that that also parallels, and this is where, you know, this is where it gets really disturbing. But this present phenomenon that we've been in for two and a half years, which is release a virus, scare everyone, sell them vaccines, right, create new drugs, and then rinse and repeat, you know, because we believe that Omicron was not a natural evolution. And now we're hearing a BXX, this new thing that's, you know, uh, coming out in Europe. Like, is this just another thing? It's just to propel their powers and an appetite and fear for more vaccines. And, you know, this kind of movie, I hopefully can open the eyes to people. People realize we're getting played. We're not getting played, but most everyone's getting played. Yeah. One of the things that, evolved as we were making the film is we realized that Fauci wasn't the villain. Fauci is the henchman. Yep. And you know, there, you know, you know, yes, his income, his net worth went up five million over the last two years, but look at the billions of dollars that have been made. And so when you take this multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry that's now the largest industry in the world in the history of mankind they've passed oil and gas and you know the the strength they have they have you know by a long shot the 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 most amount of lobbyists and budget on washington dc you take some bureaucrat like fauci and then you couple him with bill gates and his agenda and the billions of dollars to be made. And now you've got something that it, we've never seen in history. It, it's, yeah, you know, that that's an interesting thing that I just learned there. Like, I, I know Paul sent me the quote from Marsha Angel, the former NEJM editor. And there's this, uh, she wrote this line in her book from like 15 years ago that in 2002, the, uh, the top 10 pharmaceutical companies had more profit than the rest of the Fortune 500. But now they're bigger than oil and gas. They're literally the biggest industry in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, the, heard the power- her, I heard her speak once and she was quoting somebody that asked um, that was that she think that medical education was for sale. 
And she got him in and said, no, the current owner is quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent answer. Yeah. But you know, you, you know, what's another, and I don't want to just change topics, but I don't know where I missed this when I read the book, but last night I was like stood up and I was riveted when Bobby was talking about event 201, right? Which is October, 2019. And when he says, he basically asked the question to the camera, what is the CIA doing at that table? They are not a public health agency. Why are they at event 201? I almost felt like I wanted him to explore that a little, like maybe answer it for me. <laughs> I don't know. You'll get a what was that about? Yeah, I must say answer in part two. Um, yeah, so ah. the, that 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 was a staggering fact because um, they should not have been there, and it just makes the the whole conspiracy and the planning of this even more suspect. Um, yeah. Just the the involvement of, of of the people that are meant to protect us, who are, are not doing what they're meant to do. So you were telling us that there's part two. What is part two? Yeah. So part so the, the film, uh, part one that you saw last night, uh, is an hour and fifty two minutes long. A documentary really should be about ninety minutes. And and so we went ahead and divided it an hour and 52. And then part two is an hour and 12 minutes long. And that will go up next Tuesday, the 25th, also for free, uh, also for a limit. It will be up for seven days for people to view for free. And it, when we were making this, you know, the obvious question is, OK, wait a minute. How do you turn Bobby's book, you know, that massive book into a 90 minute film? And about halfway through, we went, okay, we're going to have to let this film be what it's supposed to be. And, and you know, so I'm not going to make somebody endure uh, an over three-hour film. It's This is not Gone with the Wind. Um, so we well, divided it into The book parts. has a section, too. It completely but, breaks apart there, which yeah. worked. Jeff, uh, maybe I'm biased. When you said you don't want someone to endure three hours, the people, this time, like we're such in a unique time. This film is so important. Like if there's ever going to be a three-hour film that people are going to devote their time to, I mean, literally our lives are being taken over by all of the stuff that's going on around this pandemic. And it has a history, right? And you're you're retracing that history and really setting the stage for the, the world we live in now. I can't think of a more important film. I mean, I... I I'll watch that as soon as it's out. There's <laughs> no question. I know a lot of our followers listening tonight, you can be sure they're going to watch it immediately. So, so Jeff, yeah, is, I it, can't wait. <laughs> is part two basically a continuation of part one? Is it is it material covered in the book? So it's all, yeah, we stayed within the framework of the book and, and the the structure of the film is the, the first part we called uh, 2020. And that's where we're covering, you know, this COVID crisis. Then the second part we call 1984, where we go back to 84. Then we pick up part two with 2001. And this is where we go through how he manufactured, you know, all these different crises, how he kept his budget. And we go from 2001, his activities all the way to 2020. And then the next section we called 2030. 
And th this is where we cover some of these other tabletop games they played, some of the things. When I read Bobby's book, if I had read the last chapter first without reading the book, I would have put it down and not believed it. It's right. almost like you have to digest all this material and see what he's actually done before you can confront what really is going on. Yeah. Well, it's also good that you started with how he evolved, how he got into this, because Democrat, yeah, part of the family that put all these agencies together. and he never would have imagined this. And so you really get the journey. And I think that's important. We've, I've had a journey. I wouldn't have believed it until I, the book is incredible. I can't wait to see what you've done with it. We've run out of time for tonight with you. I can't wait to get out there and watch and to then see the second part. And folks, uh, we're going to give you that link and we'll come back to it at the end of the program. But we have so much. Jeff, we thank you for taking well, this time. We know you got to run. Pierre, did you want to? Yeah, jump no, on? I just want to say like a couple more things. Um, you know, to me, some of the most riveting uh, things that I learned and I couldn't stop listening to is, is I can't remember the names. The two women that appeared a lot in commenting, uh, I think one was Vera and then another one, I can't. Whitney. Whit, uh, Whitney and that. Or, or Celia Farber, maybe been Celia, Celia Farber. Celia Farber, yeah. Their commentary and what they know and what they've seen, I mean, they were just so credible and honest and their take was just, I, I just remember this, like this one part where she just talked about, and this is, this is as, 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 as a group, right, that has learned to use repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals, you know, she talked about his long-standing, so brazen contempt for natural non-toxic therapies, right? Like, I mean, he hates, and I mean, that, that's because he's the henchman for pharma, but like that spirit and that kind of policy of our government where they just crush anything that can't make money for pharma, no matter how safe, no matter how effective, um, you, you could see that. And like when, when I was listening to that, like that, that's what we felt. You know, we, we jumped into this war on ivermectin and we got crushed. Well, I wouldn't say we got crushed. We've done it the best we could, but we, we saw ivermectin get crushed. And and that comes out of the ethos of, of the whole way this bureaucracy is built. And the other thing was just a history lesson is that it's really the 80s, right? Like at the end of Carter and early Reagan, where I, I like when, like in the trailer, when Bobby talks, the agency started getting hollowed out, you know, after decades of attacks by industry, like they literally took over government, they took over a public health apparatus. And so it was kind of an interesting history lesson. And and the the apogee is like the last two years, but it, it's been going on for decades. It, it's I, I just think it's a terrific, terrific book. And then, and then I love Bobby, his comments where he's like, he talks about how he tried to approach them. This is years ago. He tries to go to Fauci and that during the AIDS epidemic, we want, you know, what about a parallel track to let community doctors who see AIDS patients to test and try to find therapies that work, stuff that pharma and NIH doesn't want to test. And when I heard that, 
not that Bobby's naive, but maybe back then he was. That's like me, like, hey, how come we're not looking at repurposed drugs? Yeah, it actually wasn't Bobby. You don't look at repurposed drugs. <laughs> it wasn't actually Bobby. He was in the quote. He was talking about, and he calls him Uncle Teddy. It goes fast, and and we didn't have time to put a picture up, but he was talking about Ted Kennedy, and Ted Kennedy actually went and tried to accomplish this. So we're you know it's not a a young naive Bobby Kennedy. This was a senior senator who got immediately blown off. Um, the you know. A fascinating story. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I wanted to bring up those points because those were just, I, I mean, like I said, I was riveted and like, because of what I know and what I've been through, like hearing that historical arc that that's gone over 30 years. And for me, it's been two years. <laughs> like it was just kind of interesting. Anyway. Yeah. So thanks I for coming. it's really important. We get our troops to, to spread the, the link to this movie because I think, you know, people need to watch this movie. I mean, you know, Bobby does such a good job. He tells the truth. You know, his research was truly astonishing how he, he um, you know, documented every single fact. And pe people need to know this is based on the truth and it needs to be widely spread. It needs to be widely spread. Uh, I, I think it's just so important. So, you know, people who are watching, they... That you know the book is really very dense and and it's it's awkward to read, but I think this movie is a must for for any thinking, um, caring human being on this planet. So we thank you, and uh, hopefully our our troops will will just spread the word. It's the only way it will find its audience. We can't buy Facebook ads, of course. We can't, you know, buy Google ads and, and they're doing everything they can to silence it. But to collectively, as a group, we can get this out. And I, in closing, let me thank the two of you. Your, your role in this, in the film, was critical. But your role in this country and in people's lives and dealing with this, uh, I've watched with admiration from the, the time you started. And thank you. Thanks, Jeff. You Thank, Thank you, Jeff. You've got to see what happened this past weekend. These two doctors got standing ovations every time they went up to the podium. We had people, doctors, nurses, scientists filling the room saying, you saved my life. You saved my mother's life. You saved my patients' lives. You, you're just incredible. And of course, for what you're standing up for. Take a look, we have a few clips. Listen, I've, I've been a nurse for 46 years. I, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm all in, man, I am, I am all in, I am excited. Pierre and Paul started using very um, logical treatments for this illness. So I think that their approach was clearly far superior to what the official approach was. So I'm really eager to hear all the details and hear all the lectures uh, this weekend. I'm excited to learn from neurologists, Pierre, Corey, I mean, Merrick, all the guys that I, you know, and really interface with them and figure out what they're doing. Because all of us are working hard and kind of in our domains learning, you know, what works. Medicine is about practice. It's about learning from each other. It's about being dynamic. It's about trying new things and about learning what is better. And again, the more 
people we meet, the more patients we treat, the better we get at this. This is where the ball is going to be moved forward on this agenda. Like this is the population of people that is creating uh, a functional healthcare system, right? Parallel to basically the healthcare system that has failed us. This is a really powerful step in the right direction in, in trying to combat uh, what is really a societal scourge. There's a lot of things at stake here, which I think is uh, what makes it different. I've been to medical conferences now for 30 years, and this is the best I've ever been, and I've only seen four lectures. And these are the smartest, the brightest guys you'll ever meet. There's really very little resources out there and I think we have an obligation now to, to help these millions of people. This is really a start of something that I think is going to be really positive advance in medicine and uh, I think many people will watch this afterwards. I think it's going to have a big impact. The point of departure for everything that's gone wrong happened when we lost the sacred bond between practitioners and patients. This is the new model, right? It's not like, here's a Band-Aid, it's like, here's how we heal. I scratch my head and wonder why developers of a vaccine would, um, would develop something with a, a detrimental protein to be replicated. FLCCC is doing really, really important work. They're ultimately very interested in medical freedom. In these complicated diseases, we have to use our own experience, what we see and hear. We have to make sense of things, we have to think. Getting to actually meet people that, that had the knowledge and courage and, and willingness to sacrifice things and stand up for, for, their for their patients, for their community, for their state. I can't imagine not being here. This is amazing. It was amazing. Truly, truly, there was so much to learn about so many different medical specialties. And there was such a wonderful feeling of people coming together because they all put patients first. They were all just basically trying to find out what really works, what will stop the suffering, what will make them better, instead of trying to sell a mandated drug. And it, it, was, it was heady, we gotta do it again. And folks, we, we're gonna take questions. Uh, Pierre and Paul, you're gonna have to tell them a little bit more about what was said, and we'll have questions throughout. Uh, the, the program, we've got some nurses already behind the scenes, four of them taking some of your questions, but these two are going to answer some too. So I'll jump off for a minute and uh, you, you should bask in the, uh, in the glory of this because it was valuable and it was the right thing for humanity. And um, are we going to do it again? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> You know, when I um when I gave testimony in December 2020, I remember saying like there was no panel, nothing directed at searching repurposed drugs to try to treat this overwhelming pandemic. And I said, you know, we the FLCCC really led by Paul, we were filling that void. 
And I don't think I ever anticipated the amount of voids that we would see that we continue to see. And if that, that was a huge void. And I think we filled it as best we could. I think we've had impact nationally and internationally, but I will tell you this, this vaccine injury, I mean, it's, it's a humanitarian catastrophe. It's worldwide. It's every country. They're still vaccinating like crazy. The, the, the incidence and frequency and severity of injuries is, is, it's almost unfathomable. And here we are putting on what I think, unless someone can tell me different, the world's first conference in trying to help practitioners around the world in helping these patients. Their suffering is immense. I see so many literally disabled people. And the fact is, it's it's as if they were healthy and riding a bike and got hit by a, a, a you know a semi truck. These people are so functional, so healthy, and now they're disabled. Some of them can't leave their house. Some of them have unremitting symptoms twenty four seven a day. They go to system doctors. System doctors have no idea what to do with them. And so, for me, as as someone who's had a career as a medical educator like Paul. Um, it, it may be the most impactful conference I've been part of because we gave people ideas, strategies, suggestions on how to help their patients because we can't treat everyone. I mean, I have a private practice. I mean, we have a little bit of an alliance, but my hopes is that the average, this is my hope, is a system doctor might like almost like you read a book, uh, you know, under the covers with a flashlight, like they might secretly watch our conference and they might be able to help a patient because they might want to take a few of our suggestions. And, and if even just a portion of them do that, we can you know, lower the level of suffering in society after this insane global vaccine campaign. Uh, it, it, I don't know. I was very moved by that. I was so honored to be part of it. I think Paul and I were celebrated and, and that's great. But it was really about the speakers, and I, I've never seen such a motivated audience. They were so happy to be there. The doctors networked. Um, you know, Paul did something so cool. Like at the beginning of the conference, he asked, you know, everyone to stand up who's lost their job. You know, physicians who've lost their job, and a whole bunch of them stood up. And the stories that I hear from those folks, I mean, there are people who've lost their licenses for prescribing ivermectin. And, and I think it was a really, it was almost like a catharsis and a real community and networking. It, it's people, I, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not delusional. We're on the right side of history. And to bring a whole bunch of people who are on the right side of history together was uh, just mutually uplifting. And it, it was really an incredible conference. And I learned a lot. It, it was great because I treat patients all the time with long haul and post facts. And I listened to the lectures and I came up with a few new tricks and insights that that's going to help me be, be, a, be a better doctor. And so I was, as much as I was a, an educator, I was also an attendee and, and I got a lot of value out of both. Yeah. I must agree with Pierre. I mean, I think the, the educational part what was very strong, but I think the community and the spirit and the togetherness, it, it was almost like a, a religious experience that people were having um it, it it was so unifying and it 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 truly was it was like no medical conference i've ever been yep. 
Um, it, it, it was more than yeah, a Paul, Paul, we've never been to a conference with that kind of emotion and spirit and togetherness and community. I mean, we go to conferences, we've gone to conferences our whole career that's never had that spirit around it. I yes. like what you just said. It's awesome. Yeah, so I think it, it was just it, it was it was it was a it was a coming together event, and so the good news is, you know, we recorded the the, the lectures, and our goal is to make this available, much like you know the Kennedy's book. We want to make this available to the rest of the world. Um, you know, we were really happy with with the uh, attendance. Um, it exceeded what our expectations, particularly since we left this, you know, pretty late and it's difficult for people to commute. And obviously this is somewhat uh, of a difficult topic, but you know what, we have video recorded and we're going to make the recordings available for, for the whole world to see, uh, for our followers to see and for the world to see, because I think it's important. I mean, our goal I mean, our goal is to help patients. And as Pierre said, we, we're facing a humanitarian disaster of, of unbelievable proportions. And I think, you know, we had speakers from different, different aspects looking at different approaches, which I think was very unifying because there's no one single right way of doing it. And uh, I, I thought it was very valuable. And obviously, I think it energized us. So we're going to do this again. Uh, next time, it will be even better and bigger and stronger. And so, you know, we're on a roll. You know, And, and also, Paul, sooner. Because, you know, as you and I talk all the time, the, the amount of information and the speed at which we learn about insights and mechanisms and the potency of therapies, it's so rapidly evolving, you know, aside from, you know, all the emotion and everything, but like just intellectually, this is a novel, super complex disease. Paul, you've talked about this, like the most complex disease we've ever encountered, this protein and what it does. And, and so I'm talking like more as a physician physiologically and therapeutically I mean, I got to tell you, I see patients every week and like every couple of weeks, my practices evolve. I change things and my approaches is so rapidly evolving that like six months is probably not soon enough. But I, but I do think, you know, given how much we're learning and how rapidly we're learning, we really need to keep putting this information out for all those people suffering. Yeah. So what you say is true. It's a, it, This is probably the most complex disease we know. We're still unraveling all its mysteries and new treatments and different modalities are, are, are evolving all the time. It's, it's very dynamic and very changing. I mean, for example, today I, I heard from a, a patient send me an email who was almost bedridden and she had decided to start um, infrared sauna the woman has been resurrected. Um, yep. So, you know, <laughs> resurrected. So, you know, this is a modality that we just, you know, been looking at, you know, in the last few weeks. So, you know, I think the the horizons are, are endless. The possibilities are endless. And, you know, we have to do whatever we can do to help these patients because... But, uh, 
hey, Paul, let me talk to you as a, a critical care doctor to another, right? So in our former lives and careers, um, certainly I've seen amazing recoveries in critical care, but you know we're practicing at the end game, right? These are the moribund, the dying. And even though you'll take them back from the brink of death, they're typically depleted and debilitated and have long periods of recovery. In this space, we're treating the chronically ill. Like your case that you just mentioned of like the way you use the word resurrection, it's it's like this new, like as a physician used to dealing with the dying and the critically ill, when you get someone chronically critically ill who's literally disabled and you institute a therapy and they go from disabled to like totally functional, not, that, that's not every patient we see. But it's it's um, it's in ways it's like it's so much more uplifting and satisfying as a physician. So like the person who got infrared light and, and let's let's be clear, because I don't want to sound fantastical because just, you know, the therapies that I use that that produce resurrections, I have plenty of patients where it doesn't. But like I saw a patient yesterday that I've been taking care of for a few months. And he had a lot of brain fog. And it was interesting because his quote unquote brain fog kind of predated his vaccine. Uh, it just got worse afterwards, but he'd, he'd had age-related decline. He's in his seventies. And I saw him in follow-up the other day. And I had told him the last time that you need to pursue hyperbaric. And I saw him yesterday. He told me that he pursued hyperbaric within four sessions. Brain fog was totally gone. He yeah. felt he had no cognitive problems. He ended up going out to 10 sessions, but he said it was absolutely remarkable. And this is a very well-studied, very smart guy. And I, I was just blown away. Again, I don't want to say like everybody's going to have that from, from HBAC because that's not been my experience. But boy, when you find something that works in a patient and it transforms their functioning in life and, and allows them to continue in a very vibrant and impactful way, it's it's... It, it, it's an, it's an interesting area of medicine that I'm now in, and I'm, I'm totally engaged. I'm totally inspired, and and I want to just keep going. Uh, I want to figure I mean, out how many people help. Yeah, I mean, what's truly astonishing is how we have transformed. I mean, you know, we were we were ICU doctors. This is this is a space where we had never dreamed we'd ever be. <laughs> So um, it's truly astonishing, and but it does show you how people and professionals can transform. So I think, in, in a way, it, it, it is astonishing. It is. It's great. It's great. Yeah, and hey, especially when, especially when Paul, so few others are helping. I mean. It, it seems like our work is even being it's more valuable because there's so few trying to do it. And, and I'm just so happy that you and I, uh, you know, help create this organization. And we're literally a medical ed education organization. You know, when we started, Paul, you and I both know we were speaking to doctors. We were trying to educate doctors and we pretty quickly realized that the doctors were either asleep captured whatever and and but we have now we speak to people many of hopefully more and more of whom are doctors but um i i think education and and giving people agency and therapies to pursue um 
any audience is good. And, and you know, I it, uh, one thing I want to say, because I was uh, one of my questions about this weekend is how many people were physicians, right? And because we knew that lay people, because my opinion, my experience been in COVID is that the lay people are way smarter about COVID <laughs> than the doctors on average. But at the conference, we had very committed and motivated doctors. And I think the, the, the number was 70% with health, were, health, were healthcare providers this weekend, right, Paul? Was yeah. it 70? Yeah. That, and and that, that, that was really kind of what we wanted to do because we want to train providers to help patients. Because these therapies and, and navigating through these therapies, doing trials of therapies, you really do need an astute clinician to know you know, what dose for how long, when to progress. And it, it's, it, it is too, a little bit too complex a disease for the average layperson, even well studied to do. So uh, yeah. we, we were very pleased that the healthcare provider attends. Ellis, are you ready for some questions? We've got plenty. Yeah, we sure. Good audience. Go. All right. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Smith wants to know, says, my question is this. So did the vaccine actually save lives? Did it ever prevent death? Did it do anything positive to prevent death? Now, this you can go around and neighbors will say, oh, well, you know, I'm here. I got COVID. I took it. I got COVID. But, oh, I didn't die. So I guess it works. Yeah, the every, state- every, every data source, every data source, and you can have immense amounts of sources, that aren't corrupted or suppressed um, will show that in all the countries with the highest amount of vaccinations, cases and deaths were higher, period. I think um, Pfizer, Pierre Pfizer has just themselves admitted, they've just admitted that the vaccine does not prevent transmission of the virus. So that was the whole point in the first place, to vaccinate people so that they don't get it and spread it. And Pfizer themselves have, have admitted that they never proved that it prevents, that doesn't prevent transmission. And what's, so, important, what's important about that, Paul, though, is you have to remember the natural, because so like we didn't go out and vaccinated only those who haven't had COVID. Even if you had, it would have been a disaster. But we made it even worse. We vaccinated people who had had COVID. We know natural immunity, even Fauci, there's video of him saying this, at, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, the best natural immunity is from recovering from the disease. You don't need a vaccine if you cover disease. Yet the world over, we threw out natural immunity. So has the vaccines helped anyone? Even if they had, they've hurt millions because we've been vaccinating people with natural immunity. Number one, excess mortality. Uh, we know the mortality rates of 18 to 64 year olds in this country have exploded. The life insurance industry is absolutely reeling. Um, it's, I don't even, that's an interesting question if they're a regular follower, because I think we've covered this. There's no credible data. If you look at the multiple sources or totality data that could even come close to saying that this vaccination campaign was in any way beneficial to any community, society, or individual, period. Yeah, I think that's the truth. Whew. Now we have a question. Many people are asking, 
uh, they want to know when the videos from the conference are going to be able oh, to be accessed. And that's what it's Kelly. Be- where are you, Kelly? Kelly, it's going to I have a notice <laughs> at the end. It's going to be a week or two. They have a to do. Yeah, so editing, we, we, you know. we have been within two weeks um, so people can start spreading the word. And um, I think they'll be very valuable. We got some very good feedback. So next time it's they, it's even going to be better. But um, the, you know, the, the uh, videos will be available hopefully within two weeks. We're right. working as fast as we can. We say two weeks. I know Kelly, our executive director, Kelly Boom, and she's, she's trying to, she's hoping it's sooner, but as soon as it is, you guys will all know. Our mighty engine that could is chugging away. We're really working night and day. Anyway, uh, Rebecca wants to know, was there anyone who came to the conference who was not already a believer in the FLCCC and the protocols? And if so, how did they react to all that was presented about spike protein and COVID? Do you know? I have no, I have, everyone I met was deeply knowledgeable, was there for a reason because they trusted our credibility and our work and wanted to learn more. I, 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 I don't know, Paul, I, I didn't meet anyone who was like, hey, I never heard of you guys, or I just came here to check it out. I, I didn't meet anybody like that. Yeah, I think all, most, almost all the people, I would say everyone who was there was in, our, was in our camp, was on the same page, understood what the issues were, and were there just to network, to speak to fellow-minded colleagues and to learn. So um, it's a good question because there's a whole population of ignorant physicians who should be there, who weren't there, but hopefully, you know, our videos can be disseminated. You know, what patients can do is they can send links to their doctors. Hey, doctor, you want to be educated. You, you want to yes. come out of the, the cave so, that you're living in. Doctor, yeah. so, take Paul, off your blinders, doctor. I, I think the best answer to that is that we didn't meet those people, yeah. but based on how good the lectures were, how deeply studied they were, and how, how great the conference was, uh, again, I do think people, system doctors, are going to want to know. Because, listen, we already know that the system doctors are really frustrated. They're not being taught about spike protein-induced disease. They're not taught about vaccine injury, what the mechanisms are, what are some of the therapies. So they're seeing patients they, they can't help. And as a physician, that's very frustrating. So I think, although we didn't meet those doctors this time, the next conference... My guess is we're going to have a lot more that actually want to just learn and they know that we're the resource to come to. That's that's my guess. Yeah, and I think what's really important about spike disease is, is it, it goes against the normal medical paradigm that doctors are used to. So, I, I you know, doctors don't understand this multi-system disease. They don't, you know, they like to fit it into a little pigeonhole, which it doesn't do. So you're, you're right. I think hopefully, you know, we can spread the word and on our next time we can have more system doctors who really want to figure out how to help their patients. Hey, by the way, uh, Betsy, let me tell my anecdote because I don't, I don't know if I told my, my Cleveland Clinic anecdote on, on a webinar. Oh, Did no. I do that? Yeah. Okay. So, so, cause I think it's related to that last question. So just so you guys know, I saw a patient a week, a week ago that I've been caring for for a couple of months. 
she has a lot of immunologic and sort of bone marrow um, white cell abnormalities. And so she went to the Cleveland Clinic to get a follow-up. They have no idea what's wrong with her. She's vaccine injured. Um, and when she went there, the immunologist she saw told her that Cleveland Clinic <coughs> had started a division of long haul and vaccine injury. And she said, wait, you guys are seeing patients with vaccine injury? And they said, yes, it's the division of long haul and vaccine injury. So she got mad and she said, how come I wasn't referred to them? Why, why didn't I get my appointment with that division? And the immunologist told her, we looked at what you're being treated with and you're being treated with exactly what they treat people with. So we didn't think it would add any value. And for those of you at home who are listening, the way I interpret that is that the Cleveland Clinic is following <coughs> FLCCC protocols because she was on a number of meds that we use in our protocols. And so that that's a, a way to answer that last question is that if the Cleveland Clinic's watching our lead, uh, hopefully that might continue. Very good. Now, Joshua wants to know from each of us, what were the most emotional times throughout the conference that will always stick with you? And I'm going to answer this first and give you guys a chance to think about it because I'm not a doctor. And I was walking through those halls and people just kept coming up to me and saying, we love you. We love you guys. And, and you were just, you've saved my life. You saved the, all these, my patients' lives. And I'm saying, no, I didn't. It's the doctors. It's their protocols. And it's all the hard work they did, but I'm so happy to help. And it, I just couldn't get over that. I'd never, ever, you know, never been in a position like that. And you too. I mean, they just, they couldn't get enough of you. We, they surrounded you at all times. And it was, it was amazing to see. Um, but what, what struck you? Well, well here's yeah, what I, I like I to say. I think you're right. It was the, those personal stories, those personal connections that touch your heart. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we didn't, you know, we were just too, Country doctors doing what country doctors Paul, do. Well, we were five guys with a website for about a year. <laughs> True. And so, you know, it, it is. It has been an enormous evolution. But you know, we've touched people's lives, and that that you know the the reward. There's there's no better reward that you can get from knowing that you've helped somebody. And I think the, the, those those personal contacts were, were, were truly astonishing. I, I, let me just say the thing that moves me the most um, when I talk to people at conferences like this weekend, and I heard it again this weekend, but the thing that, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm with Paul. It, all of it is just so uh, it, it's great to be honored and people are so grateful for our work. I mean, we were going to do our work anyway, so but it's nice to be honored. But the thing that really captivates me emotionally and spiritually is when someone comes up to me and they tell me that if it wasn't for us, they would have thought they they would have thought they were losing their mind because they were in communities and they were in networks of colleagues where they, they were the only one who thought the way they did. 
And they started to believe what they were being told, which is that they were stupid and crazy and conspiracy theorists and an anti-vaxxer. And when they saw that Paul and I spoke plainly and openly and honestly using common sense, rational logic, and a deliberation and accumulation of the evidence, they felt like they just felt, they didn't feel unmoored anymore. They felt connected. And if if our little brains were able to provide someone a, a bulwark against all of this mass insanity, uh, that's the thing that moves me the most. We are, of course, running up close to the top of the hour. I hope you can stay a little bit longer. I know they want us to try to keep sure. it to an hour, but we've we got a lot of good stuff here. Uh, Gail Hedrick wants to know, is the flu shot, everybody's safe for people who've been vaccinated and who have had COVID in the past? I'm sorry, what was the question? Okay, uh, is the flu shot safe for people who have been vaccinated and who have had COVID in the past? The flu shot is stupid. Let's just be clear. It has minimal efficacy. If you get the flu shot, it impairs your immune system. You're going to get higher risk of other respiratory viruses. And unfortunately, although we don't have clinical data on some of the repurposed drugs for COVID, uh, if you followed our work and if you look at c19early.com or any of the compounds that are on our uh, protocols, I think this is just my, my sense. You could take the COVID-19 FLCCC protocol and just bring it over to the flu. We know we have in vitro data that ivermectin inhibits influenza replication, uh, X-Clear, povidone iodine, mouthwashes. I mean, you can employ all of those strategies for treatment. Um, listen, the flu shot is nowhere nearly as toxic as COVID, but it's not efficacious and it's the flu. You can treat it. I think if you use any combinations of therapies that we use, and, and especially if you go to C19 early come, there's so many things that you can use to treat. We want to give patients agency on how to treat themselves when they're acutely ill. Do not get the flu shot. I, By the way, I take care of a lot of vaccine injured and their histories are oftentimes, they've had rough times around the flu shot. Um, they, they have not tolerated it well. So it, it, oh, I must agree with Pia. The word is they stupid. But even if you look at the peer-reviewed literature, yep. you're more likely to be admitted with Guillain-Barre syndrome or some kind of complication from the flu shot than you are to be admitted to hospital with severe flu. So the last few seasons, it's been a particularly ineffective vaccine. And obviously, the COVID vaccine has made us rethink the whole question about vaccination. And obviously, people should do what they need to do to improve their immune system, take their vitamin D, get, vitamin exercise, D. get exercise, get sunshine, do all the good things that they could do to promote their health. That's much more important than a stupid shot in the arm. Got it. All right. Now, a lot of people want to know, speaking of shot, what do you both think? What's your take on the Boston University announcement about the synthesized deadly COVID variant? It's insane. So this is our take on it. I, I, was, I did a TV interview yesterday, but there, there's more questions. Uh, well, he, he, here's what we do know, is that Boston University, we don't know what 
Uh, I'm not going to curse. Can I curse? What the no, F? Use the F word. What F nuts? What F nuts decided this would be a good idea? Um, but those F nuts that decided to be a good idea somehow got approval from their own institutional, you know, institutional review board, which ethically <laughs> monitors all research. But how a university could supposedly independently, because the NIH is now distancing themselves from their involvement, think it's a good idea to monkey around with viruses. You like that? Monkey around with viruses? Um, they're literally recombining viruses. And here's the thing. They put out the paper. They didn't know it was going to go viral and become like an international, national sort of story. And the most troubling thing is if you look at the BU statement that was put out in response to this paper going viral, it's full of, you can call them lies or absolutely misleading statements. And that's extremely troubling. So what is BU's response? Because the whole world freaks out because what goes viral is that they cooked up a virus that's 80% lethal. And so they try to hide behind that and they say, no, we actually made a weaker virus. That is a completely misleading and disingenuous statement. What they did is they took an Omicron virus, the original one that was mild, that killed no mice, killed no mice. Remember, we're fighting for the mice, Paul, aren't we? No, not so much. Okay. But literally, they took the original Omicron virus, it killed no mice. They recombined it with the Wuhan uh, spike or vice versa. And suddenly it was 80% lethal to the to the mice. And they said, no, it's not gain of function because they're not manipulating the genetic code. They're just recombining viruses. To me, even as a doctor or as a layperson, I don't give a crap how you're doing it. If you take a viral strain and you make it stronger and more deadly, that sounds to me like it fits under the umbrella of gain of function. So I'm busting them on gain of function. And the one thing is, here's this, they make Omicron 80% more deadly and then they try to defend themselves by saying it's not as deadly as the original Wuhan strain was to the mice. So they're saying we made it weaker. That is completely disingenuous, misleading, if not outright fraudulent and lying. They should have no business monkeying around in viruses after we've been in an environment of two years of a cratered world, ruptured societies, bankrupt people, and millions of dead. And they're hanging around in BU and they're trying to like, monkey around putting together the virus. This is absolutely atrocious. And, and it shows you the state of science. These people have lost their minds. Did they, I'm not the scientist that you are, was that study sufficient to be the equivalent of giving the instructions on how to make the bomb? No, I, I don't know. I mean, again, if, if what they put in their study, this, you know, yeah. we We've learned, we should have learned our lesson that messing with nature is a bad thing. Yes. And whenever we mess with nature, bad things happen. We should stop this. I thought that the development of these bioweapons was, was illegal. And that's what this really is. And humanity must stop this. Nothing good can come from making lethal pathogens. We have to stop this. And hey, I, Paul, it, Paul. If you read that statement by BU, the thing that arranged me the most is where they had a couple of paragraphs about how their bio level safety three or four lab, we take utmost precautions and, you know, like it's a safe environment. Are you kidding me? Lab leaks have been described for 
decades. And so they're going to tell me that somehow their lab is not prone to a lab leak. It's absolutely shocking. Yeah, I mean, viruses. Yeah, after this whole COVID thing, you would imagine we would have learned our lesson. <laughs> you know what? Just stop, stop right. monkeying around, as you say, monkeying around. Just stop it. It can't. It's not in our best interest to stop messing with nature. We have something on the positive end here. Patricia Rosenstein says, you have a cohort. Whoa, where did it go? Okay, my phone is doing funny things. You have a cohort to practitioners who may be able to revamp the medical community due to having lost their jobs. I see new and better medical education and improved hospital systems in the future. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I think this system has failed this traditional medical model has failed. Hospitals are dangerous places for sick people. So what we are developing, it's just happening, is an alternative healthcare system where patients can really get health care which cares about them. So I think as a, as a consequence of this complete failure of the entire medical system, the entire medical system from top to bottom is a complete failure and we have to build something new. And I think that's what's happening. We have a question from Daniel Kraft who says, what strategies have you learned and how to encourage patients to keep searching for the truth? I'm a retired pediatrician in Florida. I know of many patients who have given up because of frustration. They've made the rounds of multiple subspecialists who have all told them the lab work doesn't show any abnormalities. Unfortunately, I have told them that the reason for that is that these doctors have not been asking the right questions. Yes, so that he's absolutely correct. Most of the tests are, 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 are not helpful. These physicians do not understand spike disease. They, they don't listen to their patients either, and they don't believe their patients, which is yes. the most trouble. So Piers right, they don't listen to the patients and they don't believe the patients. And they say that all these weird symptoms on the head, this is not real. So this is the problem with these system doctors. We, they need to be taught. They, they need to understand what they've learned at medical school is wrong. So education is unlearning what's wrong and then relearning, you know, what's right. So um, that's what we're facing. And he's absolutely correct because these patients are, are, are being shunned and ignored and mismanaged because these system doctors practice system medicine, which, which does not fit into this paradigm. And a listen, Betsy, I, you know, it's a similar question to what I get, which is like what to believe and who to believe. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I came up with my little... <laughs> My my advice on who to believe is you need to find a person who meets like sort of a certain number of qualities. Number one, number one, number one, number one <laughs> is no conflict of interest. And when you talk about conflicts of it, it's not just that you're working for pharma. Conflict of interest nowadays actually includes working for a health system. Because you will not be open, you will not be honest, you will not tell people what you really think if you're working for a health system. And if you work in California and you're licensed by California, 
that is a conflict of interest because you cannot now tell what you think is the actual real scientific or medical truth. Because if you do, you run the risk of losing your license. So I think actually all doctors in California are compromised somewhat, not all of them. Obviously, some are going to be bold and they're going to they're going to willing to risk their livelihood and licenses to tell the patient the real truth. But you want someone free of conflict of interest. You want someone who is expert in that field or issue that you are interested in learning about. You want someone who is transparent and able to provide you the data to support their points. So when a doctor tells you, after you just got COVID two weeks ago, go get COVID again, and you ask him, what is the data to support that? It's what the experts say. Don't listen to them. You need to have the data. So it's no conclusion interest, expertise in in that area that you are, willing to share data transparently and open to debate. And the fifth, not always necessary, but willing to sacrifice something in order to speak the truth. And that, good luck with that one. I'd like to get four more in. We might have, if you can, we can be fairly tight on this. Allison Post asked, it would be great if you could do a special training or webinar on these teachings for health coaches. What do you think? I don't know what health coaches are. Is that doable? Yeah, that, that's come up in my practice. Um, uh, I, can I just say like, yeah, that's just outside my wheelhouse. I'm going to leave health coaching alone. Um, I think we are somewhat health coaches <laughs> in a way, um, but on like a personal level and training health coaches, I, I, I can see where we could probably provide value for those who are seeking to be health coaches. I think we could contribute to their education and guidance, but uh as of right now with our bandwidths and what's going on i i don't know that's something that i could pursue okay victoria lacoste says asks are the blood banks now completely contaminated because of vaccinated blood as far as i know they're not asking the donors about their vaccination status nor are they separating the blood by vaccination versus non-vaccination what are your thoughts yeah, we've spoken about this before. The the, the blood banks are, are not going to play play along with us. Um, they're not asking if you're vaccinated. So um, you, it's like Russian roulette when you get blood and blood products, unfortunately. So that's another reason to avoid the hospital. But obviously, if you have a, if you're in a car accident, you need well. One 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 uh, positive. I don't know enough about the organization, but I learned about them recently. I think they're called Safe Blood, but there is there is someone in that space. Um, I can't remember if they were from uh, Switzerland or not, but I saw a fancy website where they basically called out the fact that they think it's important in order to. gain or develop blood storage where you can differentiate the two. So I I think there is some recognition activity in the, in the space, but if you're talking about the widespread system, I agree with Paul that that there's, they're not doing that yet, but I, I probably when they figure this out, it's going to be five years from now, but I think there are some people who are leading the pack on that. Uh, There's there's no good answer to that. No great answer. 
Okay. Jody S. wants to know, is there any place for gain-of-function research for our national defense? Can it be done safely or more safely? Is it, necess- is it a necessary evil with other countries that will be doing it? Well, here's, here's what I say. Wait, let, me, let me answer that, Paul, because I have a really specific answer. Because if you're going to do gain-of-function, there should be only really one reason, right? It's so that you can develop either a vaccine or a treatment to counteract it if it were come to be. But that's almost like an internal paradox. So wait, you're going to make a deadly virus, figure out how to treat it. What if you hadn't made it at all? Would we have to figure out how to treat it? How do you know what you're building is what the other side is building? I would think it's much more important to learn about repurposed drugs that are available where a sudden viral catastrophe comes on. We had dozens of antiviral repurposed drugs to protect ourselves with. I, I don't think you should be monkeying around trying to build more deadly viruses. My, understand, my understanding was that in 1969 that the bioweapon research was banned. This should be a international treaty and we should not be messing around with developing bioweapons because things will go wrong. I can see no good coming from bioweapons. Last question. John Dawson asks, how can we help stop the COVID vaccination from being added to the children's vaccination schedule across the country? The CDC said something about that today. Yeah, I don't know. It's done. It's Vote done. on any vaccine for any absurdity for any patient, whether they're two days old or 10 days old, it's done. We are in a state of full regulatory capture. I, you know, I got to tell you, in my networks, in my text groups, on my email groups, everybody's freaking out. And they're literally watching the ACIP, right, which is the Advisory Committee for uh, uh, Immunizations and Pediatrics. Everyone made it sound like, oh, my God, are they really going to approve the, the schedule? I'm sorry to sound smarter than everybody. But if you haven't been around as long as I have, which is two years, I've only been around two years in this whole space. If you look at everything they've done so far, if you actually have the thought that they might not approve it for whatever pharma proposes, go back, take a class in regulatory capture. You know, um, Jeff Hayes just talked about it today. The pharmaceutical industry is the most powerful industry in the world. Do you think they're going to let a little bun, a, a bunch of nubbin guys on a, on a committee say, no, we don't think it should be in the schedule? That's not how the system works. The people are on that committee to say yes. Okay. On that happy note. <laughs> yeah, it's not a happy note, but I get it. I get it, Betsy. I, 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 I get it. I get it. Yeah. Well, guys, you're, we're, we're going to be back next week. I have a few announcements. Uh, the first thing we want to do is make sure that Betsy and everybody else out there grabs the popcorn and heads on over to Fauci Movie, FLCCC.com to watch that incredible documentary that you heard about at the top of the show. You want to see it. I want to see it. It's, it's apparently amazing. So now then, we want to thank everyone 
for helping us make our first FLCCC conference such a success. We send a special shout out to all of our incredible speakers who spared us so much of their time to share their expertise and to all of our volunteers, our donors, our staff, and everyone else who made it all possible. Our unending gratitude. We really couldn't have done it without you. Now then, Education on demand. People want to know, for those of you who couldn't attend in person, we are uh, pleased to announce that our education on demand package will be ready within the next week or two. Healthcare providers will be eligible to earn continuing education credits for the virtual conference. The cost of the digital package with credits for healthcare providers is $150, but we wanna make sure the conference content is available to as many people as possible. We, we really do, We're, we, you know, we want people who don't have money to be able to have, to learn and have it. So if you're not interested in earning credits, you will still be able to participate in the Education On Demand Conference. The conference was a huge endeavor so we are asking that people donate whatever they can afford to help us offset our costs. I mean, this was a huge, <laughs> huge undertaking. And suggested donation amounts are $50 to $100. Now, email us at events at flccc.net to be notified when this package is ready. And... Um, you know, we, we, as I said, we want it to get out to as many as possible. If you can donate, bless you, we need it. Uh, we want to be able to do this again. Now then, donations, even if you aren't interested in the online conference, please consider making a donation of whatever amount you're able to give. Putting out this educational content is our mission, and we count on your support to make it happen. The gift, no gift is too small. We thank you for whatever you can donate. And now we want to say a special thank you to our nurses. We had uh, four nurses on tonight. Uh, they were, where are they? Scott Rogers, Scotty up there, Samantha Hanks, Pamela Burnham, and especially Christina Moros, who is our head nurse honcho, our C she's our clinical specialist, and she orders the fun items and gathers all the nurses together. We have, we have, um, where's that merch in the store? Um, Christina, you've got some good things there. We have a slide of that. And how do we do on the questions tonight? We answered 144 out of about 170 questions, Betsy. Pretty good. Pretty and I wanted good. to circle back on that blood question. Yeah. People can donate their own blood and, and store it. I don't know specific addresses where that can be done, but it is possible to donate your own blood before surgery. Just so FYI to the, for the viewers. That's for planned surgery, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's for planned surgery. <laughs> okay. Now then look at the autumn stuff that we have. You pick all of these fun things out. We want folks to drop by the store, check out the latest designs that are in for cooler weather. It's certainly cool up here in New Jersey where I am. And all proceeds from store sales also support our educational mission. Please don't forget, we welcome everything you can do. Now then, 
we're going to thank you. We're going to obviously talk about the uh, part two of the Fauci video uh, probably next week, along with other things. We're going to leave you with an informative short video that we have, which lays out the baseline tests recommended for people suffering from post-vaccine symptoms. And we will see you back here next week. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Listen, I've, I've been a nurse for 46 years. I, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm all in, man. I am, I am all in. I am excited. Pierre and Paul started using very um, logical treatments for this illness. So I think that their approach was clearly far superior to what the official approach was. So I'm really eager to hear all the details and hear all the lectures uh, this weekend. I'm excited to learn from neurologists, Pierre, Corey, I mean, Merrick, all the guys that I, you know, and really interface with them and figure out what they're doing. Because all of us are working hard and kind of in our domains learning, you know, what works. Medicine is about practice. It's about learning from each other. It's about being dynamic. It's about trying new things and about learning what is better. And again, the more people we meet, the more patients we treat, the better we get at this. This is where the ball is going to be moved forward on this agenda. Like this is the population of people that is creating uh, a functional healthcare system, right? Parallel to basically the healthcare system that has failed us. This is a really powerful step in the right direction. In, in trying to combat uh, what is really a societal scourge. There's a lot of things at stake yet, which I think is uh, what makes it different. I've been to medical conferences now for 30 years, and this is the best I've ever been, and I've only seen four lectures. And these are the smartest, the brightest guys you'll ever meet. There's really very little resources out there, and I think we have an obligation now to to help these millions of people. This is really a start of something that I think is gonna be really positive advance in medicine and uh, I think many people will watch this afterwards. I think it's gonna have a big impact.
The point of departure for everything that's gone wrong happened when we lost the sacred bond between practitioners and patients. This is the new model, right? It's not like, here's a Band-Aid, it's like, here's how we heal. I scratch my head and wonder why developers of a vaccine would, um, would develop something with a, a detrimental protein to be replicated. FLCCC is doing really, really important work. They're ultimately very interested in medical freedom. In these complicated diseases, we have to use our own experience, what we see and hear. We have to make sense of things. We have to think. Getting to actually meet people that, that had the knowledge and courage and, and willingness to sacrifice things and stand up for, for, their for their patients, for their community, for their state. I can't imagine not being here. This is amazing.